everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I am a licensed clinician here in California specializing in OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders. Um, and that is what, oddly enough, this podcast is all about. It's about OCD, anxiety, treatment, and getting your life back. Um, this is a question and answer based podcast. So if you have a question about um, those things, uh, shoot me a message. Go over to fearcastpodcast.com. Go to the submit a question link and you can ask a question about treatment and I will answer it on this here podcast. So I'm going to start this episode out with a listener question. Uh, we're going to just jump right into it today because um, I'm going to a- answer one question because um, I feel like it's important. And then uh, I'm going to launch into the main segment today. And so I suppose it's flip-flopped. I often will do a, uh, a main segment kind of teaching section at the beginning and then go into questions. I'm going to flippity-flop it today. Um, so today's main segment is going to be talking about real event OCD, but with a twist. So not just the um, big episode talking about a particular one particular type uh, or subtype of OCD um, but instead the the somewhat interaction and I suppose the the cultural relevance of this subtype with the current culture that we're in so we're going to be talking about real event OCD so this is also known as real life OCD um, and the interaction it plays with cancel culture so this uh, subject was uh, inspired by someone who messaged me over at the Instagrams. Um, so thank you to you. Um, so so you're welcome for this one. But um, we're going to go into that in a little bit later. But first, I want to start this episode out by answering a question from a listener. Because I, I, if, if I get one question like this, I'm certain I'm going to get more. In fact, I did get more. So I got one question from this officially through the podcast. And another person has been messaging me over at the Instagrams. So it basically goes like this. Um, this is a question from Chanel. I believe that's how that name is pronounced. So the question is the Thus, I just listened to your podcast about POCD. Now I'm triggered because you don't explain that people with POCD will never act on the thought. This is important to know. So that is a fantastic question. I do appreciate this person bringing this up because it's a touchy subject, right? The same type of question was asked uh, over on Instagram by somebody else, and I've been interacting with this person. Um, And I'm going to give a similar, I'm going to give the same answer because I would like to be consistent uh, with myself in this. So um, for those of you who don't know, POCD is uh, short for pedophile OCD. It is OCD simply about or simply about the subject related to the person fears that they are or will become a pedophile or perhaps has has been a pedophile, etc. It's anything related to these subjects. So on that episode, and if you're interested in this, you can go back and listen to that episode. But um, I did not say that um, someone with POCD will never act on this thought. Now, there are plenty of other therapists and writers out there who are going to specifically say that those with POCD and also HOCD and harm OCD and you know, any other subtype, they're going to say, it's not real, it's OCD. So therefore, we can ignore the presence of the thought, or excuse me, we can ignore the content of the thought and get on to the exposures. Now, here's the difference between that and what I'm saying. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with that person, with that therapist or that writer, but here's my problem. I can't predict the future, and neither can you, right? 
I can't say what either one of us will or will not do in the future. You and I can talk about our present sense of value. We can talk about our goals and desires for our life and ultimately what we would like to do and how we would like to treat other people. Those are our values. It's what's important to us. It's what drives us uh, in the decisions that we make. But you and I can't say what you and I will never do because we can't because we haven't done it yet. You and I, what we can do, we can reflect back on what we are presently doing or reflect back on the past and to talk about what we have done or what we haven't done and how we have interacted with people and places and items and objects and, and situations, etc. And we can say what we did. Now, when we get into real event OCD, we're going to talk a little bit about that um, more specifically. But the, but the closest we're really going to be able to get is to say, I haven't done these things in the past, and I don't want to do them in the future, and I'm not presently doing them now. These are all true statements. I mean, for the most part, unless you have, and we can talk about that, and actually, that is part of the subject of um, real event OCD. But for the vast majority of folks, for example, with POCD, they are terrified with the idea that they may do this or they have done this. And generally speaking, they haven't. I'm saying generally because I don't know every single one of you, my dear listeners, backgrounds and histories and situations. What I can say is people with these various fears are extremely unlikely to do these things, right? You and I are unlikely to do the last thing that we ultimately want to do, right? The thing that's lowest on our to-do list, the last, the quote, the last thing that we'd want to do, it's highly unlikely that you and I are then going to do that thing. But that's what OCD grabs onto. It's going to say, this thing that you say that you hate, no, 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 you actually are going to do it. You want to do it. You will do it. Or you have done it, despite the fact that you don't want to do it or didn't want to do it, etc. What I also can say is, I don't know anybody who I've worked with or who has had POCD who has then done those things. Periodically, you will hear kind of fringe stories of this weird thing happened and this happened as a compulsion and it raises questions and it further feeds back into um, their fear. I'll give you an example. Um, and, and, and you hear me talk about this on the HOCD um, uh, uh, episode. Some people will have the idea that one of the best ways for them to confirm whether or not they are gay is they actually need to have sex with a same-sex person in order to confirm that they are not gay. Now, some people will then do that. So they're going to do the thing that they don't want to do. Now, the, what that will do for that person, maybe for a split second, is go, okay, I did that thing. Ah, oh, see, it's not for me. I don't want it. But then a split second later, their OCD is going to jump in and they're going to say, oh my gosh, you did that thing. Now you are gay. Or, see, you did it, you wanted to do it. Gay people want to have sex with same-sex partners. You did it, so therefore you must be gay. This is why I've 100% said that is the worst compulsion that one can do with HSD. Eh, I'm not going to use hyperbole with that. It is a very bad exposure for you to do. I don't know if it's the worst, but it's, it's unhelpful. So, similarly... I, now, with that person, actually, I'll go back. I can't say whether that person is then going to, quote, become gay to whatever degree you, you 
interpret that phrase, right? Similarly, I can't say with someone with who has POCD that they're never going to act on the thought, right? The person with HOCD didn't think they were going to act on the thought. So similar to you, uh, Chanel, 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 anyways, I can't say that you're never going to do it. The last part of this question I think is really important. They say, this is important to know. In other words, it's important to know that they're never going to do it. It's not. The reality is it's not. It's not important to know if you're never going to do it. It's important to your OCD, and that's the point. Your OCD is holding you hostage and captive, and it needs to know in order to, quote, let you off the hook. But even if you satisfied that for a hot second, it would grab you and pull you back in and say, now you need to know more. Are you certain you know? Because, yeah, Kevin said that you weren't going to do it, but, I mean, what does he know? He can't predict the future. Now you need to go ask this other person or read this other book or talk to my friend or read other stories online just to make sure. See how this story goes. It's not important to know. You can still live your life not knowing if you're going to do it or not knowing if it's going to become true about you. And in fact, that's the treatment, is moving forward in life, not knowing if you're then going to do it. Ooh, the uncertainty, right? It's uncomfortable, right? I don't want to become a pedophile, but I have to find a way to live a life assuming I'm not going to, but living with the possibility that I could, right? Everything's a possibility to any of you who would say, I would never do that. You don't know. You, you, in reality, you don't know. And that's scary. And I'll give you that. But we need to find a way to live in conjunction with this possibility without elevating that to a probability. Notice the difference there. Probable is not the same as possible. A lot of things are possible, but probable means likely or that there is a, a likelihood that that thing is going to happen, meaning it's, it's, it's more likely than not to happen, right? I mean, it's possible that there could be an earthquake in the middle of my recording. It's very possible. I live in the land of earthquakes, right? Southern California. But it doesn't mean that it's a guarantee. We'll see. It's possible for me to get hit by an asteroid, but it's highly unlikely, right? Furthermore, I don't need to know that I'm not going to get hit by an asteroid, or I don't need to know that I'm not going to um, suffer uh, in the middle of an earthquake in the middle of this recording in order for me to sit here and record, or for me to go outside back to my car. Now, you're going to say, well, that's different from being a pedophile. That's the worst thing that you could do. It's not great, but because it's the worst thing for you, that is why OCD grabs onto it and says, you need to know. So, I'm going to get onto real event OCD here in a moment. But to any listeners out there who are, who are wondering or saying, I need to know this, I need to know that I'm never going to do it, that is your OCD talking. You don't need to know. We need to find a way to live in conjunction with the uncertainty and the fear of that terrible thing happening or the unwanted thing happening with whatever that thing is and moving forward with life in a cl- it, it, with as close adherence to our values as possible. If you don't want to be a pedophile, don't do it, right? 
If you don't want to have sex with a same-sex person, don't do that, right? If you don't want to become a murderer, don't try to kill somebody. Now, again, I know that's very simplistic, and it is, but it's also incredibly terrifying. So my advice for you is to practice sitting with what that feeling is of not knowing and of not getting that certainty from me or from any book or from any other therapist out there. There are going to be therapists out there who will be happy to tell you that you're never going to do it. I ain't one of them, and I'm not going to be one of them. I'm sorry. So you've heard as much of my um, reassurances to these points as I can possibly provide. So, without further ado, let's get on to Real Event OCD. All right. So, Real Event OCD is another subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Real Event OCD is also known as Real Life OCD, and it, it, vary, it, it, it varies slightly from other typical manifestations of OCD. Generally, with other manifestations of OCD, the person hasn't done the thing that they are terrified about. Often, the fear is about what if this thing eventually happens? What if this thing could happen? What if I might have done that thing? And then a lot of the other behaviors that the person does, um, the compulsions, are things that they're doing to try to find certainty that they're never going to do it, or preventing that thing from happening, or avoiding, um, or, or avoiding anything that might confirm that it did happen. With real event OCD, the big difference here is the person is certain that that thing did happen. It did happen. The core of real event OCD is not about whether or not you did or didn't do the thing, but whether you're a bad person as a result of it. And we can say bad person, we can expand that to evil or terrible or awful or sinful or fill in the blank with something else that is terrifying or rejectable. This is what we're terrified of within this context. Did this thing that I do result in my forever being rejected from the world, rejected and and excluded and unqualifying of love or participation or success? As we do with every one of these big episodes, quick review of what OCD actually is for all of you newbies out there. So, OCD goes like this. Everything that you and I could ever experience, thoughts, feelings, images, sensations, urges, interactions, relationships, items, whatever, are neutral. They're neither good nor bad, right nor wrong, true nor false. They just kind of are those things. We interpret those things as good or bad, right or wrong, safe or dangerous, etc. Or liked or liked or liked or unliked or wanted or unwanted, things like that. Now, our brain is trying to keep us safe. It's trying to point out all the dangers in the world around us, things that could harm us or, or, or serve as obstacles in our way, and it's going to try to stop us from doing those things or experiencing those things because that would suck, right? Or that would be awful or fill in the blank with some other fancy or more clinical thing that I probably should have said instead of sucked. Anyways, obsessive compulsive disorder works in that fashion, obsession at a compulsion. The obsession we experience as this what if or if then sort of scenario. What if I did this thing? If I did this thing, then this might bother you. What if I did this thing? Then 
I might fail. If I did this thing, then something bad might happen. Um, let's go with contamination OCD, the one that everyone's aware of, right? If I touch this doorknob and it has COVID on it, I'm get, uh, then I could get COVID, take it to my family, get them sick, kill my uncle with diabetes, etc., and that would be awful and reflect upon me. What if I, I, I felt a, a, a bump in the road while I was driving, right? Neutral. We feel bumps on the road. What if I actually hit somebody and I'm going to get arrested, and it's going to be my fault for having almost murdered or did, in fact, murder somebody back there. That would be awful. Now, this is a feared story. Your brain is giving you this tale. It's a possibility, right? Possible, not probable. That story makes us feel uncomfortable or scared. So it leads into this anxiety. Now, you and I would rather not feel anxious, so we're going to try to do something to make sure that that feared story never takes place. Or at the very least, that we feel better, right? Because we don't like feeling bad. This is where our compulsion come in, comes in. The compulsion is anything that you and I can do to alleviate the anxiety, get rid of the anxiety, or to, again, make sure that that story is never going to happen. That can be through avoidances or ritualistic behaviors or routines or reassurance-seeking so again, anything that we do. Now, once we do that thing, we feel better. We feel confident. We feel safe within ourself. Ah, oh, that thing is not going to happen. Good. I'm safe again. The problem is, remember, we've talked about that story being neutral and kind of nonsense. So it reinforces it. It makes it stronger because we went through this whole rigmarole to make sure this thing is never going to happen. Oh, and we felt better and our brain loves to feel better. So now if and when we ever encounter any of those random things in our environment that bring on that thought again, it creates that anxiety. and We go back into this cycle. And the more that we think about something, the more that we think about something. I know that's simple. But OCD grabs onto these things that could potentially be dangerous. And let's be honest, our brain comes up with a whole bunch of nonsense most of the time. So it's going to tell us this tale. We get terrified. We do something. We feel it more. Anyways, so ultimately, what does this look like within real event OCD? As we've mentioned, someone with real event OCD has actually done something. They actually have. So... A lot of the things were common things that folks can get triggered upon, things that might have happened in the past that they will eventually start ruminating about. Now, it's not to say that any of these things are inherently good. In fact, generally speaking, we're all going to say these things are bad, right? And again, we've talked a lot about putting a values judgment on things, but generally speaking, within our... Um, uh, our within our, our, our cumulative values, we're going to say these things are bad. We don't want to do these things, right? Amongst the things that people can obsess about within real event OCD are events of actually drinking and driving in the past, perhaps breaking up with someone in the worst possible way, maybe touching, experimenting, or quote, playing doctor with someone while you were younger, right? Perhaps in the past, actually kissing someone of the same sex. Other examples can be actually cheating on a test, Maybe cheating within a relationship. Maybe remembering that time that you actually said something racist. Or that time that you looked at child porn. Or having sex with someone who wasn't 100% into it. Now, it's important to say, and I'm going to acknowledge this at the very front end, we're going to talk about a lot of things that may be triggering to a lot of people. I'm not in favor of the vast majority of things we're going to be talking about. 
I think it's going to be hard for me to say cheating on a test was a good idea. Cheating on your partner was a good idea. Having sex with someone who wasn't 100% into it was a good idea. But when we start getting into the cancel culture discussion of this, we'll talk more about making mistakes and screwing up and how that and how all of this is leading us into living in fear. But a person with real event OCD might have done these things, have made mistakes, screwed up. And these things violate or live in opposition to who it is that they ultimately would like to be. The person that they're trying to live up to be, their values, the stuff that's important to them. They're going, I did this thing and I can't stand it. It sucks. And it might have been things that they did 10, 20 years ago. And they might not have even thought about it for a while. And all of a sudden, they're thinking about it now. So, some of the questions that can come from this is not going to be, did I do this thing? But, does this thing that I did make me an awful person? Now, these are part of these obsessions. What if this action makes me an awful person or evil? They might experience an intrusive thoughts of that event. You might experience overwhelming feelings of guilt, shame, embarrassment, or even fear. You might be experiencing thoughts about being punished, being canceled, or being caught for your past deeds. Those feelings are bad. Those feelings, I'll say this, those feelings are unwanted, right? But just for a moment, let's talk about the difference between OCD and just feeling guilty, Now, I did a whole episode on guilt and shame a while ago, so I'd encourage you, if you're interested or experiencing a whole litany of guilt and shame feelings and want to talk about the differences and similarities between those two, if you're interested, go back and check out that episode, and uh, I think it does a really good job explaining the differences between those two. But just kind of briefly, with with regular guilt, meaning the guilt, guilt is just that bad feeling we get when we've done something bad, when we've done something wrong or violated some rule, either with ourselves or society, etc. With regular guilt, meaning having done something that violates our values and violates who it is that we ultimately would like to be, the person, generally speaking, will, will acknowledge the act, and they'll make attempts to make amends, if possible or reasonable, at the time. They might experience potential reminders and kind of jolts of guilt or or shame or embarrassment. Um, But ultimately, with regular guilt, they find a way to move on with minimal or no ongoing actions for seeking forgiveness from other people or punishment. And often this kind of infraction is then not personalized as this core trait. That being said, with OCD someone's going to get stuck on that feeling of guilt and be unable to move on. There's going to be repeated attempts to achieve certainty, certainty of their character, certainty of forgiveness, certainty or a a punishment for the act. Now, often, once somebody does seek this out or try to find this sense of certainty again, again, they get a temporary sense of relief, but it's followed by this returned guilt, this returned um, awful feeling, and then further and excessive ritualized attempts to try to make sure that everything's going to be okay. Again, certainty that they're not this bad, awful person, because I don't want to be this bad, awful person, neither do you. So another thing to consider, and and this is going to be one of those controversial statements, I suppose, Um, if we do something bad... We should feel bad. If you cheat on a test, you should feel bad. If you cheat on your spouse, you should feel bad. It's doing things against our value system. Now, 
does that mean we need to rake ourselves over the coals for the rest of our life? I'm going to go ahead and say no. Furthermore, being able to catch ourselves in that process, be able to catch ourselves when we start beating ourselves up or telling ourselves we're awful or excluding ourselves from those things is going to be incredibly important. But again, there's this tremendous difference between feeling guilty over something that we did and say, ugh, this thing I did, I don't really like, I want to do this differently in the future, and getting stuck on it and fall and falling into that OCD pattern. Now, what are some compulsions within real event OCD, you might be asking? Well, I'll tell you. So, some folks, and this is not going to be an exhaustive list, but some folks will call the police. They might call lawyers and discuss the ramifications or potential consequences of their actions. They might call um, past uh, school administrators. They might call the provost of their previous college and, and, and test the waters or even confess that they had test, uh, cheated on a test you know, back in you know, 1984 um, and uh, they should completely uh, uh, take away all their degrees and et cetera, et cetera. Some folks may ask family members what they think of, of, of what you did. You might say like, hey, what would you say if I did X? Maybe even adding details and getting more and more detailed about it to see how far it would have to go before you would actually finally get that rejection or get that punishment. Again, confessing to other people in order to get forgiveness, kind of telling lots of people about it, hoping that people are going to say, that's fine. And by the way, I'll say this in advance, um, the vast majority of the things that are w within Real Event OCD fall within that gray area. People generally are going to say, oh, that's fine, or it kind of sucks, but yeah, it's fine. Meaning it doesn't deserve excessive punishment, it doesn't deserve prison time, it doesn't deserve exclusion, etc. Other compulsions that people might do, and this is um, this is one is really, really common, it's going to be mental review. So a lot of this pure O internal stuff. So mental re reviewing one's actions to evaluate the, the terribleness of them, kind of evaluating the terribleness of other, again, the, the actions, maybe the thing that you said, maybe what the other person said in response how the other person responded, just in general. In other words, like to, to check, um, was the other person genuinely hurt? Was, was there any sign that they were offended? How offended were they? So mentally reviewing all those things so they can kind of take themselves off the hook in some sort of way. Another example can be mentally twisting or kind of changing details to see maybe what they would have done differently or how could this action have affected the outcome, how it would have changed the event, and therefore, would it verify that they're still a good person or that they're not as awful as they like to think or that the other person wasn't hurt and therefore we're off the hook. Now, there's going to be a bunch of other compulsions that someone might do within this. This is not an exhaustive list. But once those things are done, they feel better. They feel that relief for a second. And then their anxiety starts roaring back because again, there's never going to be enough reassurance for your OCD, for this bit of anxiety. Now, as with any other type of OCD subtype, um, there's going to be a lot of connection or similarities between it and others. Um, so some of the other uh, accompanying OCD subtypes can can be false memory OCD. So this is going to kind of be similar. And again, it's going to play into real event OCD or have flavors of real event OCD. But within false memory OCD, it's not that you gen in this case that you genuinely know that you did the event, but that you might have or that you could have or that you had the opportunity to have done something or that you um, 
or that you're not totally sure that you did something bad, so ultimately that you seek certainty that you didn't. So that's the compulsion. You seek certainty um, through other people or just mentally reassuring yourself that you didn't do this bad thing and that you're still a good person. Now, where the false memory comes in is that when we think about something more and more and more, so when we're doing those mental compulsions and mental review to think back to an event, the more that we think about it, the more we start to elaborate and distort that memory. And through that elaboration and distortion, we can convince ourselves that we did do something. It can feel more real and it can elevate that false memory or just even a thought into one that we are more or less certain that we did do it and therefore it feeds upon itself, right? If you took this thing that you're not so certain of, you think about a gazillion times and you feel more and more worried about it and you get that anxiety welling up within you and you have that thought action fusion going on and you have emotional reasoning at play, you might start believing that you actually did do that thing. So then it starts to feed back into real event OCD and we experience it, experience it in that fashion. Sometimes I'll hear uh, false memory OCD kind of associated with childhood memories. Now, um, the reality is childhood memories don't really show up until like anywhere between three and four years old. And usually, usually not, um, not before five. So, sometimes people will talk about, I mean, think about this for yourself, right? Um, if you say that you have, you know, you distinctly remember your first birthday party, or you distinctly remember your first, you know, Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or anything, any other holiday you, you, you celebrate, um, you probably didn't. I'll, I'll say probably because I don't know y'all, but you probably didn't. It is probably a memory that has been put together from a collection of stories or pictures that you might have seen, and our brain attaches all those together and creates a story, creates a mental image, a, a movie in our head, and we internalize that as if it is a story. I'll say this, it might be, but it probably isn't. But even later on, let's say, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, like we remember those years, right? When we replay a memory in our head a gazillion times, over and over and over again, we exaggerate things, we add things. It takes, we, we take that kernel of a memory and we start expanding on it. Think about how fish stories are made or how legends are built, right? If you've ever talked to a fisherman, fisher person, I suppose, is that the fish story always starts out with a person catch, catching a fish, right? They did, or they got close to, right? But that fish turns out from being, you know, a, a, a five-pound, I don't know, bass or something like that, because that'd be enormous, right? But it, it'd be a, 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 an okay-sized fish, and the more you tell it, the more the struggle became harder to get that fish into the boat, or, you know, the, the epicness of the weather that day when you were catching the fish, or when you pulled that thing up on land, how big it was, and the teeth were enormous, and it flipped and flopped all over the place, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is, again, how legends are built. This is, again, how uh, uh, we, we hear that story from our uncle, and every time, at every holiday, we hear it, and it gets bigger and bigger. We do this to ourselves. So, false memory OCD can quickly turn into real event OCD, not necessarily with fish, but with other stuff. Now, similarly, um, there can be something called, and, and as I was reading a little bit more about this to kind of prime my brain for putting this uh, episode out, um, I came across something called re, uh, I came across something called life editing OCD. I'll be honest, I've never heard of this subtype. 
but we can get into subtypes in the discussion of that later. So, with apparently with life editing OCD, there's an attempt to remember and monitor everything that you do just in case you'll have to recall it at a future date. So, in my head, I'm kind of thinking what this is is kind of preemptive real event OCD. So, this is something where you're trying to make sure that you are um, trying to remember everything that you did just in case you might have to report it in some day. You might have to report it someday. I'll say that life editing OCD can even subsequently be related to memory hoarding, which is a behavior that uh, that sometimes shows up as or mostly shows up as a compulsion. And it would seem that memory hoarding and and life editing OCD are ultimately kind of the, they serve the same purpose, but for two different reasons. With life editing, it's more of trying to remember everything to get out of future trouble. Memory hoarding being more consistent with trying to remember in order to get the full happiness or enjoyment out of life. Now, again, those are very simplistic um, interpretations of both of those things, but um, there, there you go. So, you might be asking, well, what does all this have to do with cancel culture? Well, unless you've been living under a rock, or um, I suppose then you're, you're happy, um, you, you are unaware, or you are aware, depending on the person that you are, of something called cancel culture. And what this ultimately is... It's kind of the practice of shutting down, firing, expelling, or rejecting a person, organization, or product based on the comments or actions that that person or group did, and sometimes didn't do. And I'll also say this, oftentimes these actions or things that they did have to do with things they did in the past, but, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, some of the more popular, well, just a few examples of, of um, kind of cancel culture that we've experienced, um, if you're aware of it, um, there was a senator named Al Franken, and he had, when he was a comedian, back before he became a senator, a congressman? Senator. Anyways, um, he took some photos mimicking grabbing a woman's chest. Now, these photos weren't great. If you you can probably find them online, they're not great. He took them when he was a comedian before he became a politician. Um, but those pictures were there. That happened. What happened was they came to light. People got reasonably upset, and they demanded for his resignation, and he subsequently did. Another example is James Gunn. He's a director. He uh, famously directed the um, Guardians of the Galaxy movies, um, and he was fired from that movie, or fired from making subsequent movies, um, and then later hired back on, but separate conversation, um, for making homophobic tweets about a decade earlier. Uh, so apparently these were when he was trying to be a stand-up and trying to make edgy comedy, and he said something that was um, homophobic. If you go back and read them, they kind of are. But he was fired 10 years later. Similarly, if you've heard uh, of Kevin Hart, he was most recently fired from um, hosting the Oscars for homophobic tweets he had made years before. So the common thing with all these people are they actually did these things. They did these things where in the time that they did them, they might not have been completely fine. Everybody might not have said, we're totally on board at the thing that you did and said. In fact, there'd be probably a lot of people who would say, it crosses the line, it's not okay, you, you shouldn't have done that, you screwed up. But as time goes by, or as more and more people are aware of it, it starts to get caught up either in the changing kind of zeitgeist of the, the mood of the country, culture, or, or society at large, or gets caught up in political turmoil, which I suppose is saying the same thing. You're very aware 
that we're in the middle of a of the Black Lives Matter movement or a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement from years ago. And it's important stuff. Genuinely speaking, it's important stuff. And it has caused a lot of people to reasonably question their own implicit biases, potential racism, uh, racist acts that they may have done. And if you remember a couple of years ago, I think we might have talked about this on the podcast, with Brett Kavanaugh being um, interviewed for the Supreme Court of America, um, he had done some stuff that weren't great, or he was accused at the very least of doing things that weren't great. Um, and, uh, and that was, he was being called to resign, step down, or to ultimately not be affirmed for the Supreme Court for the things that he had done. Ultimately, he needs to be canceled and fired from the things that he had done, or for the things that he had done. When we're constantly being bombarded by stories like this, it's reasonable, it's human of us, to sit back and go, have I ever done that? Have I ever done these things? Am I guilty of that? And sometimes we're going to remember stuff. Sometimes we're going to remember things that we did or said in our past that we are not proud of. That we, if we could go back in time, we would do something different. And we would not say that, or we would instead say this other thing, or we would in fact imply more emphasis or imply less emphasis or do something different. So, this is where there's this overlap between real event OCD and this fear of cancel culture, and where a lot of folks may be experiencing real event OCD right now as a result of the political movements that are going on in America and across the world. So people might be asking, well, have I ever done something in support of the wrong side? Whatever the wrong side is, at any moment in time that you are listening to this podcast, you might also be questioning, was I sufficiently against the bad thing? Not just were you against it, or are you, are you globally or kind of broadly against it, but was I sufficiently, it's ambiguous, right? Sufficiently against the bad thing. You might ask, was I or am I compliant or complicit in allowing this bad thing to take place? So again, it's kind of that enough, right? Have I done enough? to fight against the bad thing, or therefore, in my omission of behavior or action or deed, did I allow that thing to happen? And furthermore, what will happen if and when I get accused or caught of doing the thing or not doing the thing? Again, this boils down to, am I a bad person? Am I one of the bad guys here? Am I awful and deserving and w worth firing, canceling, getting rid of? This can reasonably so get a lot of people to go back into their memory banks and evaluate the thing that they did. Like we talked about with the compulsions. Did I do that thing? What was the other person's response? How bad was it comparing it to other people? Was it as bad as this other person? What if I get caught? Should I apologize for it? Should I do something to seek uh, a punishment, persecution? in some type of way just to confirm that I'm one of the good guys again. Now, before we move on, I'm going to say this about cancel culture. I'm against it. Here's my caveat. I'm not for bad things. I'm not for people saying racist, homophobic, sexist, fill in the blank, right? I'm not for people having sex with someone when the other person's not 100% into it. I'm not for it. But my fear with cancel culture, and, I, and this is not a popular position, or it is a popular position, I'm not quite sure. Let's be honest. As I'm doing this, in the back of my head, I'm going, man, I'm going to say something that someone's going to catch on to this and put this public, and they're going to say, Kevin's not woke enough, and we should fire him and never listen to his podcast again. 
And yeah, that's a real possibility, I suppose. But my position is this. You and me, we're human. Okay? We're going to make mistakes. I have said stupid stuff in my past, and I'm willing to bet there are things that you all have said or done or thought or not said, thought or done, that you wish you could do differently. Cancel culture, unfortunately, doesn't acknowledge the humanness in all of us. It doesn't allow us to make those mistakes because of how the history might change and the zeitgeist might change or will change and put us on the wrong side of it. So my stance is I'm against cancel culture. We as people need the permission to make mistakes and to grow. That is the key. So instead of just canceling someone outright, broadly speaking, it would be great if we as people could see the mistakes that other people make go, hey, bro, that sucks. That's not okay. Or you really need to straighten up and fly right in a sense, right? But to allow this person to make some changes within themselves, to acknowledge what they have done wrong, and to take active and meaningful steps towards resolution or getting right with themselves, the idea, the culture at large, and to be able for us to be able to let people make mistakes and grow without saying you're done and you're done forever. Because what it's going to cause us to do is to then not say anything. We're going to avoid. We're not going to take risks, right? Now, again, this is not like, hey, take the risk and cheat on your wife. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes with the things that we say, we're going to screw up and make mistakes. We need to be able to have those mistakes and allow ourselves to be forgiven with ourselves and with other people. Now, I'm saying all of this from the position of a non-expert. I'm not an expert when it comes to cultural issues. I'm not an expert when it comes to uh, wokeness in any sort of fashion, really. But I'm a man in process and in progress, like the rest of you. Some of you are women in progress, but um, we're, we are, are all people trying to improve ourselves in some type of way, right? That's why you're listening to this. I fully expect that if I were to listen to this whole episode in five years, I'm going to not agree with some of the things that I've said today. I, if I even if I listen to this tomorrow, I might not agree with the things that I'm going to say. I'm going to make mistakes. And when I do, I would ask that some of you let me know. Bring it to my attention and let me see if I can do something different. I would do the same for all of you. I imagine if I were to go back and listen to some, my first couple episodes, I bet I'd go back and do some of those things differently, say things differently, change my position on some things. Who knows? But I'm also not going to live in fear of it, but to try to do my best and to keep moving forward, which is why we also want to talk about how we can challenge real event OCD for the stuff that you and I did in the past and try to move on from it and to develop a better life. So one of the first things that we can do, again, with treatment for OCD in general, it's going to be CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, and mindfulness. So with CBT, what we're going to do is we're going to try to challenge the legitimacy of the thoughts that we're having and to see if the way that our brain is telling us this story, is that genuinely the way that it's going to go? Or reasonably speaking, using and implementing our most rational thoughts, what would be another way and a more reasonable way to view it? So we might want to challenge the potential outcomes of that event. We might want to consider how reasonably, how have other people responded? Not how we are afraid that they might have responded, but what do we have evidence for? 
What is the common answer you get from people when you do talk about it? Do they say, oh my gosh, bro, you're the worst? Or do they say, that's pretty messed up, but sucks, or we make mistakes? We also want to consider maybe how have other people gotten past the guilt or gotten past the shame of the behavior that they did in the past? So, two of, the, two of the biggest cognitive distortions involved with this, black and white thinking and magnifying. Magnifying is taking this one event and saying it's the worst thing. We magnify that importance across our life and say this one thing is the representative character of who I am, and that's, the, and that's what makes me me. It's not. We do one thing. We need to challenge and bring that back down in in conjunction with everything else in our life. Secondly, with black and white thinking, it's either one or the other, right? I am either good or I am bad. It's also known as all or nothing thinking. What we want to do is to think about who are we overall, not just black or white, right? Because we are, you and I live in this gray area between good and bad. We are neither 100% good nor 100% bad. If you're experiencing real event OCD, you're obviously thinking about that one thing you did that one time, and it was, quote, bad. So you're obviously not good, but does that overshadow all of the good things that you can also very easily identify in your life? And probably, there, you probably have more examples of the good stuff than the bad stuff, right? OCD overemphasizes that one bad thing and says, nope, you're in the bad stuff section. That's, that's where you are. But the, the example that I give all the time is that idea of Hitler, right? Hitler, good or bad? Generally, people say bad. By the way, I'm going to agree with that. He's bad. But I give the example, well, he probably did one good thing one time, right? He probably got flowers for, you know, his girlfriend, which I suppose is a nice thing. He probably got flowers for his secretary, administrative assistant, or I don't know what they would call him back then, probably secretary. But he probably got flowers for someone or said something nice about someone, right? Does that make him a good person? Well, no. He's certainly more in the bad stuff section, and this is not me trying to justify Hitler, everybody, but it's the reality that one good thing does not make us good, and one bad thing does not make us bad. So with your therapist, you can start to challenge the stories that your brain is telling you, and that's going to be the cognitive restructuring piece of CBT. So the other part that we're going to do is through exposure and response prevention, and this is incredibly important across the board with every manifestation of OCD. One of the big ones that you will likely be doing is scripting. You've heard me talk about scripting a lot, and it's going to ultimately be writing a story about getting found out about your actions or found out about your characters being a bad person. And oftentimes, you're going to be focusing on the consequences of being being this bad person, right? You got caught as being this bad person, or you did this thing and it's it's made public, and now you're going to suffer all those consequences. And the point of this is to lean into that discomfort. We're not trying to heap guilt upon ourselves just because it's fun, but we're trying to sit within that discomfort and to say, this feeling is just a feeling and I can feel this. It doesn't mean that it's true. It doesn't mean that these consequences are going to happen or should happen. It just means that this feels bad and I need to live with this feeling without trying to shut it down, ignore it, or trying to undo it or neutralize it in some sort of way. I need to feel this and realizing that I can feel it and live my life. So scripting is going to be very, very helpful for you. Now, remember, ERP is short for Exposure and Response Prevention. Exposure, 
being exposed to the thing that feels terrifying. And response prevention is preventing yourself from doing your compulsion. The response, compulsion, prevention, stop doing it. A lot of the treatment suggestion and guidelines for real event OCD is going to be essentially response prevention. Now, this is the example I've given for imposter syndrome, and that's going to be go live your life and let people catch you. Go live life and wait to get caught. And that also means living your life without actively seeking punishment. Another tool you can do is delaying your compulsion, putting it off. So you can say, you know what, instead of running into this uh, checking rumination, asking, I- I'm going to do this in an hour. Now, what will it take for me to not get that reassurance that I'm still a good person for this hour, or for even 30 minutes, or for 10 minutes, or even for just 10 seconds, to give myself permission to just have that feeling of not knowing, and the reality of not knowing, for just this little bit of time. Now, if you're able to sit with that feeling of not knowing, you can also start actively seeking out exposures. You can go and do things where you could potentially be a bad person and sit with that discomfort. Or you can do things that will let you feel or have those thoughts that make you fear that you're a bad person. So that might be going out to a bar or a restaurant. It might be being alone with somebody. It might be, it might be talking to women or talking to men. Other exposures you can do is to perhaps watch movies or watch TV shows where someone does that bad thing and they experience bad consequences, right? So watching movies about someone drunk driving or cheating or having this awful breakup or saying a racist comment and sitting with that feeling of that and saying, yep, that thing sucks. That thing I did sucks, but that's the feeling that I have and I can survive with this feeling. I need to be able to make space on the couch, make space here in the room for that uncomfortable and, quote, bad feeling. One of the ways that you can give yourself permission to do this or to practice feeling this way is through mindfulness. Mindfulness is ultimately being accepting and acknowledging of all the things that are truly happening right now. And right now, you're having that bad feeling. So how do I let myself have that bad feeling without convincing myself that it's not there or that it shouldn't be there or to try to fight it and make sure that it's not there? Instead, I've got that bad feeling. How do I make sure that I can sit with it and invite it there and say, it's just one of those feelings that I have? An exercise that you can do with this is to get in touch with that feeling of uncertainty, as I mentioned earlier, sitting with that feeling that you don't know. You don't know if you're that good person or bad person. And to really seek out where that sits in your body. And how do you make space for it? While taking this dispassionate and non-judgmental and non-combative response to it. Lastly, and I've said this before, is that we need to turn our shame into guilt, into action. What does that mean? Shame is that bad feeling we get when we are something bad. Guilt is that feeling that we get when we have done something bad. Shame tends to lead towards isolation and avoidance. Guilt ought to lead into action. We need to say, instead of saying, I am this awful, terrible, bad person, and catching ourselves when we're using that language, but instead shift that into, what have I done that I disagree with, and what can I do differently? How can I act more in accordance with my values today? How have I failed to live up to my values in the past or even the, the recent past? 
And then what lesson can I take from that? And how can I use that, and perhaps remind myself of that, to then make changes in my future behaviors when I encounter similar situations? That's how we can turn this into a reasonable thing for further developing our character and our desire, living like you and I would want to. Lastly, I'll say this. We need to remember that all of us make mistakes. I said this a lot during the discussion about cancel culture. Regardless of what other people are going to do, you and I are going to make mistakes and we need to let ourselves off the hook. We are going to change and develop and mature in our character and our actions and our values. And we're going to develop more self-control and we're going to develop more compassion for ourselves and for other people. And we should. We shouldn't be stable for the rest of our life. We shouldn't have decided that we are who we are at 10 and have never changed. Because we're going to be different from 10 to 20 to 30 to 50. We're going to develop and mature. There are going to be things about us that are going to be different. I know I am, and I'm better for it. I'm not the guy that I was when I was 25. And thank God. You're not the person you were when you were 25, thank God, or 15 if you are 25. Instead, our dumber, younger self is going to make statements, have done things that we regret, and we can take those and to further our development as people. It doesn't mean that we keep doing those things. It doesn't mean that we have to be proud of them or happy that we've done them, but we need to acknowledge that we have done those things and to continue to push to make our lives what we want it to be as best we possibly can. Having the relationships and the job and the character and the interaction and the friendships that we would ultimately like to be and that we would like to be proud of of ourselves in 10 years, knowing that we're going to continue to make mistakes. Me too. I probably in this episode missed something, misspoke, said something I ought not to have. And I'm certain I'm going to regret it I'm certain I'm going to think about it, and I'm certain that some of you are going to think about it too, and that's okay. I'm going to have to find a way to live with that. So I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode on Real Event OCD. I know it can be really scary and hard to have those memories of the thoughts of the thing that you did that one time, but putting yourself through the rigmarole to try to get certainty that you're a, quote, good person, to use that black and white language, is fruitless and never-ending. Instead, treat yourself like everybody else. You, like me, are this in this gray area between good and bad. And that's a good place to be. Again, because maybe you're just like the rest of us. Neither good nor bad, but both good and bad. And that's the place to be. Okay, everybody, you made it through this episode. As I said a billion times, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you have questions about Real Event OCD, would like to provide me some feedback on this episode, good or bad. I'm happy to hear it. I'm happy to uh, uh, make changes or to address some of those things in the future if and when I did some egregious mistake. But I am going to sit here with the reality that this may be my last podcast ever because I'm going to be canceled. And I say that jokingly and also say that acknowledging that that has been my fear with every episode since episode number one. Um, But that's a separate conversation. So again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. 
If you have a question for a future episode, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and uh, ask me a question there by clicking on the submit a question link. Um, please remember, everybody, that the Fearcast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about therapy and trying to get uh, into some therapy or get better with your symptoms, um, go over to Fearcast Podcast, uh, and there's going to be some links there that uh, can uh, help uh, help you get connected with some treatment. All right, everybody, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye. Bye.